and joyful be, and through eternity I'll sing on, I'll sing on, and through eternity I'll sing on. You may be seated. Please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 14. We'll be picking up in verse 21 tonight. So uh, last two Sunday evenings ago, we, uh, uh, we talked about chapter 12 and the downfall of worship in the northern kingdom with Jeroboam last week in the morning. And we talked about chapter 13 and the first half of 14 uh, about the prophet and the man of God. Uh, this morning, or this evening rather, uh, the, the narrative kind of shifts back to what's going on in Judah. Okay, what's going on in the southern kingdom? Uh, are things any better there? And so chapter 14, verse Kings 14, beginning in verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they had also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. And he also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Abijam his son reigned in his place. And now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in, Jeru- in, Jude- in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 
And now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel... Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. And nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. Baasha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And Asa took all the silver and gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the son, or king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijeon, Dan, Abel-Beth, Maacah, and all Chinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Terzah. And then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt and they carried away the stones of Ramah and his timber. With, uh, with which Basha had been building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you have written even these things down for our instruction. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak through the preaching of your word as you already have through its reading. And we would ask, O Lord, that you might speak to our hearts, uh, that we might hear of Christ and be nourished. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So one of, the, one of the things that I loved to do most as I was growing up and all the way into adulthood, whenever I could, when I wasn't working or anything, I loved to go, loved to go hunting. 
and it's deer season right now. It's the fall. It's the, it's the time when you're supposed to go hunting. And so, you know, the older I got, the more I went by myself, you know, learned to, to sort of carry the things with me that I needed to carry with me so that, uh, because I didn't have anyone else, right? When you're growing up, your dad does all that stuff for you. But when you start hunting by yourself, you got to learn to carry your own things. And one of the most important things I think that you could probably uh, need to remember to carry uh, is a flashlight, because most of the time when, when we went hunting, it was, it was usually in the evenings. And so we would go out about three thirty, four o'clock in the evening and sit until dark. And then we'd get down and, and go home. And so it was very important to remember a flashlight. Because you get, you know, half a mile, mile, couple miles into the woods. It gets really dark, especially out where we were. And a flashlight can be quite handy. But what's even more important than bringing a flashlight is remembering to put batteries in that flashlight. And so there's not been, not been a few times where, you, where I've gotten out in the woods and it's been time to get down and walk back to the truck and I go to turn on my flashlight and there's no light. Flashlight's not any good without any batteries. Imagine that. So it's, it's very important to not just have the thing, but to have the important components that make that thing work, right? It's very important not to just have, uh, you know, at, at, at the birthday parties and stuff, not to just have the toys for the kids, but to have the, the batteries also that make those toys work. The same goes with microphones and all other manner of things that run off of batteries these days. They're not any good unless they have the actual juice that makes them run. The same thing, I believe, is true here as we open up 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 21 with Judah. Judah has something that no other nation on the earth has, and that's the revelation of God Almighty to them. He has revealed himself to them. He has chosen them to be his people, and they are to be, uh, he's going to be their God, and they shall be his people. He's revealed himself to them in the law. He's shown them his grace and his mercy in delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. Right? They have the revelation of God. They have a wonderful heritage, right? A wonderful, a marvelous past. But the heritage is worthless without the heart. They have the heritage, but they lack the heart. This is, this is true first and foremost. You know, in, in Judah, when we open up chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, the author switches from you know, life in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam to life in the southern kingdom under, uh, under Rehoboam. And we're perhaps thinking, you know, this is, this is the kingdom to which God made those promises that David would never lack a son on the throne. And so hopefully, hopefully things are better there than they are in the northern kingdom. Remember, in the northern kingdom, there was all manner of different false worships going on. So maybe things are better in the south. But we don't get very far into the narrative before we notice that, wow, in just one generation, things have slipped so far, so fast. 
right? They went from, from in chapter 8, verse 5, from sacrificing so many sheep and oxen at the, at the first day in which they inaugurated worship at the temple, from sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted to here in chapter 14 and verses 22 to 24 to just complete and utter apostasy. Right? They've went from providing, or from, I'm sorry, from provoking the Lord's presence in their worship in chapter 8, verse 11, to provoking the Lord's jealousy in verse 22 because of their sin. They went from building a temple in chapters 6, 7, and 8 to building high places and to building pillars and to building ashram, which are false god poles, which they would worship, uh, worship at in verse 23. They've went from enjoying and worshiping the Lord God Almighty to enjoying male cult prostitutes in Jerusalem. The author kind of brings the the, the sting of their sin to the forefront when he says in verse 21, right at the end of verse 21, that that the Jerusalem was the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. God chose to put his name there. And that's the place where they chose to sin against him most heinously. They have the heritage, but oh, their hearts are so far from him. We move to the next king. Okay, King Rehoboam, he dies, and and who takes the throne? Well, it's Abijam, his son, and we're thinking, oh, hopefully Abijam will be the one. Maybe he will be better than Rehoboam. Right, Abijam has, has the explicit heritage. He, he, has, he has the bloodlines, right? David is his great-grandfather, Solomon, who knew the Lord early on in his life and hopefully knew him at the end. Solomon was his grandfather, right? He's got the heritage. But it's also explicit that Abijam doesn't have the heart either. Abijam reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, verse 3. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Abijam has the heritage, he's got the right DNA, he's got the right bloodlines but he doesn't have the heart. And so we come to the realization that, well, actually, Judah is really not any better off than Israel is. They are missing the important component of being the people of God, which is having a heart that is wholly devoted to the Lord God. They have the heritage, but they lack the heart. It's like having the flashlight, but not having the batteries that makes it shine. 
As we think about that idea, right, the, 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 the fact that, that it's possible to have everything that they need in place, right? The temple is in the southern kingdom. The priests are in the southern kingdom. They had the word of God in the southern kingdom, but the heart is not there. As we think about the fact that, it, that it's possible to have all of, the proper, uh, all of the proper things in place, but not the most important component, it, it also applies to us. Some of us in this room, right, we have the heritage. Right? We, we, enjoy, we have enjoyed and we will enjoy the blessing of being brought up, going to church Sunday morning and evening and, and being raised by parents who are wholly devoted to the Lord and love the Lord and teach us right from wrong and teach us the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? What a blessing. But the danger for us, especially of those who, who rode in the back seats on the way here, right, as children, is for us to, to, to have the heritage, but never for ourselves devote our hearts wholly to the Lord God. Right, that's the danger. And the realization is, is that is that before the before God's judgment throne, heritage doesn't really matter. God, God wants the heart. The danger for, for those of us who drove here tonight, those of us who, who, have, who have loved the Lord and are truly devoted to the Lord, the danger for us is to substitute our, our obedience for our heritage. Right? It's to substitute our heritage, right? The fact that, that I have all my theology and I know my theology is right, it matches the confession and it matches the Bible and it works in a system, right? That the danger is for us to get our theology right and to have our heritage, but to trade all of that in and then become lazy, laxy Christians that refuse to grow into maturity. Right? To have an informed head but not really have the heart that actually works out into the hands and to the feet. Right? right theology is not a replacement for growing into Christian maturity. Right theology is not a replacement for spirit-wrought, simple obedience to the commands of God. To kind of boil it down, right theology is not a replacement for a heart that is devoted to Christ. Right theology is good, but it's not a replacement for a heart that's devoted for Christ. The heart matters. And the heart is actually what God sees. God sees the heart. Right? Though the Lord in this passage is not quite as actively doing as many things as he was in, in chapters 13 and 14, or early part of 14, he's still doing things. And one of the main things that the Lord is doing in this passage where we see his name come up is he's seeing, he's looking, he's eyeing. In chapter 14, verse 22, when in the context of, of talking about what's going on in Judah, it says that, that Judah did what was evil in the sight, in the eyes of the Lord. 
Right? Every king, is, or almost every king, is going to be evaluated by that formula. What did they do? And was it good or bad in the eyes of the Lord? In the context of talking about King Asa, right, we're not given that formula specific. I'm sorry, yes, we are. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 5. Sorry, talking about Abijam. Though we're, God doesn't evaluate him on you know, the part of his sight. David does, and we're told that, that Asa did not, or Abijam did not live uh, with his heart devoted to God as David his father did. But David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 5. Skipping on down to talking about King Asa, right, chapter 15, verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Right, the kings are evaluated according to what God sees. And what is he looking at? Well, and we, we notice that when God sees, he doesn't just see all things, but more specifically, he sees the heart. He sees the heart and he judges between what is good and what is bad. It's obvious from the fact that we even have these statements about the heart in the narrative itself. Because I can't read anyone's heart and neither could any other human read any other human's heart, right? It's God who reads the heart. And so God has revealed to the author of Kings that their heart, the hearts of these men. Right? When God sees, he doesn't just see all things, but more specifically with the Kings, he sees their hearts. In chapter 15, verse 3, talking about Abijam, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as David his father. Chapter 15, verse 14, when we're talking about Asa. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. God sees everything, but more specifically, he sees the hearts of men. One of the most useful tools, I think, that anyone's come up with when it comes to hanging pictures or anything on the wall is that little thing, the stud finder. All right, we, we're so used to you know, beating on the wall and trying to find the stud so that we can get that nail in there so that when... Uh, the kids come running through the house, the picture doesn't fall, crash to the ground because the drywall won't hold it. Right, it's the stud finder is incredibly useful because you, you, just, you just press the button and you, and you move it along the wall and it sees through the drywall and it can tell you where that two by four is behind it. Incredibly useful. God sees through all the outer actions He sees through all of the acts of the kings that they do. He sees through everything that comes to pass under their reign. And he sees to their core, to their hearts. That can be a wonderful thing. It can also be a scary thing. But it can be a wonderful thing. Because if God sees to my heart, then he knows... When it's sick, he knows when it's suffering, he knows when it's hurting, even if no one else does. It's comforting. 
But it's also, at the same time, can be a, a quite a, a scary thing. Because it's really easy to build our entire life around pleasing other people. About doing A, B, C, D, E, and F throughout our day because we want to please the people around us. When the reality is, is that, that it's God who looks on the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And it's God who judges whether those actions are good or bad. And so God knows every motivation for what I do. He knows every, every thought behind every action that I take. He knows everything concerning the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Right? I can't fool him like I can fool social media. I can't fool him like I can fool everyone else in public. He knows what's going on in here. And that's, that can be quite a scary thing because who wants their thoughts, the thoughts and intentions of their heart to be broadcasted before anyone else, much less the most holy God? Until, that is, we see God's heart. God's heart for his people God knowing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts can be, can be quite frightening and quite scary until we see His. Until we realize the fact that, that, that God's heart for His people is one that overflows with love and mercy. God knows everything. He knew everything that was going on in Judah. None of this is any surprise to him. He's aware of everything. He's aware of everything that happens in verses 22 to 24 of chapter 14. He's even aware of the fact that Judah's worship, that Judah's spiritual estate is probably even quite worse than the northern kingdom, right? Worse than northern Israel's, right? Remember back in chapter 12 where King Jeroboam in the north, he he gets afraid because he's scared the people are going to go back south. And so what does he do? He constructs for himself this this, uh, phony false worship system. He builds two calves. He makes temples. He appoints priests. He institutes feasts, right? And we see all of this kind of in the works in chapters 13 and 14 as it's confronted by the man of God and the prophet. But what's going on in Judah seems even worse than that, right? They've not created a false worship system. They're hijacking gods and, and, and staining it. In Judah, they build high places and pillars and ashram, and they invite in male cult prostitutes. That's not anything we read of in the northern kingdom, at least yet. In chapter 14, verse 24, they did, even, to state it in an even worse way, they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They're doing what the Canaanites got kicked out of the land for. Right? They're, they're committing the same sins that the Canaanites did before the Israelites lived there. And the implication of verse 24 is that, well, if Judah is committing those same sins and worshiping the same false gods that the Canaanites did, well, then they should be kicked out too. Right? They should be exiled from the land. They should be 
exterminated. They deserve the wrath of God. But instead, God gives good to them. Instead of giving his wrath, and instead of removing them from his land, at least yet, what does he do? He gives good to them. We see the, the, the good that he gives to them in, in his fatherly discipline again. Hey, what, is, what does God do to those that he loves? He, he disciplines them. And we see this as, as kind of the, 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 the structure, the, 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 or the, uh, the components of worship in Israel sort of deteriorate. And not only the components of worship, but there's just the, the wealth of the nation altogether. Right, we read, we read of, of the king of Egypt coming in and taking away all the riches of the temple. Right? He hauls away all of the gold and it's replaced with bronze. Right? We're used to, under the reign of Solomon in chapter 4, there was peace in all the land. Well, now there's war continually. Every king, after his, after his reign, it mentions that there was war continually after him. We remember King Solomon bringing in all of the riches of his father David to the temple treasury and storing it there. That The temple was the place that probably the, the most gold in all the world was centrally located. And by the end of chapter, or by the, by the middle of chapter 15, we read that the temple's empty. At least mostly. The silver and the gold have been used to bribe other kings. God has removed the wealth and the comfortability of his people as an act of discipline on them, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. Instead of giving them his wrath, he gives them good, not only in discipline, but he gives them a good king. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 9, we read about King Asa. First paragraph is more of a general overview of his kingship. The second paragraph being eh, maybe a not so good instance in which he's painted as a shifty character. But the thing that the Lord gives the people of Israel is verse 14. Yes, the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And how did that work itself out? Well, he put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land. He removed all the idols that his father had made. He removed Maka from his mother from being queen mother because she was leading the people of Israel in false worship. And he cut down her image and burned it in the brook Kidron. The Lord graced the people of Judah with a good king, not perfect, the final paragraph proves that he's not a perfect king. But he is a good king who slows the slide down the slippery slope. Why does God give good to Judah and not to Israel? That's the question. Right? Why does God discipline Judah and why does God give Judah the third, this is the third best king that they'll ever have again, King Asa. Why does he give them discipline and why does he give them a good king 
when they deserve his wrath and his punishment, perhaps even more than Israel, the northern kingdom does. Well, the answer is in chapter 15, verse 4. It's not because of anything that they've done, but it's because of his mercy alone. It's not because of their obedience. It's not because of their heritage. But it was for David's sake that the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. It's because God promised to David that there would always be a lamp in Jerusalem. It's because of God's mercy, sheer mercy, that they don't get his wrath. And what a better, what, what, what better portrait of the gospel can we have in the book of Kings? That those who deserve the wrath of God instead receive his mercy out of sheer grace because he's promised to love his people. We learned this morning that, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all deserve wrath. And why don't we get it? Why don't we get the wrath that we deserve? It's because of Christ. Because Christ himself has taken it upon himself. In conclusion, I want to I leave you with, with one one thought to take home with you. Taking kind of this whole passage in view, knowing that it's the Lord who looks upon the heart and it's the Lord who gives mercy. You can lay down to sleep tonight knowing that the one who knows you best loves you most. You can lay down tonight because you are in Christ knowing that the one who knows you best loves you most. And so when our heads hit the pillows and all of these sorts of problems, all of the, the, all of the negative things that happen in our lives, all of the, the, the troubling things that are going on in this moment, when they start flooding through our heads, all of us have problems of all different sorts. We can rest and know the fact that the one who knows me best loves me, knows, loves me most. And because, he, because I belong to him, he has given me Christ as my savior and he promises to me to be my father. Which means that, that the wrath for my sin shall never be mine and it means that, that he, will promise it, he promises to take care of me until he calls me home. You can rest in the fact that the one who knows me best loves me most. And so memorize the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that 
You do know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and yet you judge us not according to them. That in Christ we have freedom from our sin but we have freedom from the wrath that it deserves. And we pray, O Lord, that this truth would comfort us in the dark night of the soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.